series uh, in the message today. Uh, it's called The God Questions, right? Do you guys have that ready to go? There it is. Okay, The God Questions. You guys have seen that sign out on Bodega Avenue, and maybe you've seen the sign in those little invite cards, if I have one of those, if I put away my receipt for the donuts. There we go, the God questions uh, that you can hand out to friends and family and stuff and invite them here because we are really trying to answer real life questions that real people are asking, the kind of questions about God, the Christian faith, church, that they say, you know, if I don't get an answer to this question, this is going to keep me from either wanting to go any farther in the Christian faith or it's going to keep me from wanting to go to church. So we want to try to address the question and answer it while we're here in church to help people uh, gain a deeper understanding of the Christian faith and what's it about and why, like what First Peter says, that, to, that each of us are to be ready to give an answer to a person who asks us to say, why do you believe what you believe? We're to be ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope that we have. And we do it with gentleness and respect. So we're going to try to do that today with another God question. Last week, we talked about the origin of the universe, like how does a 14-billion-year-old universe and a 4-billion-year-old Earth, how, how does that scientific discovery, reality, relate to this idea that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the Earth? We talked about that uh, last week. This week, we're going to talk about a related question that now that there is a universe, now that there are living organisms— and we have the kind of world that we have today with all this amazing plant life, animal life, life as human beings. Uh, how did we get here, right? Did you guys ever ask yourself that question when you're walking along? Maybe you're a teenager. Maybe, uh, you know, between your heavy metal sets on your place, on your, uh, your Walkman or whatever, uh, you, were, you were thinking about the deeper questions of life, and you say, you know, how did we even get here? You know, I know mom and dad, I know I get biology and all that, but how did, how did we get here as a human being? Where did we come from? What are our origins, and is there any meaning to life, right? So the Christian faith answers every one of those questions. There is a competing theory of how we all got here, and we're going to address that today. That competing theory is called evolution, and a lot of people believe in evolution. I, I for one, believe in evolution, but uh, you got to have an asterisk on the end of that because I believe in a certain kind of evolution that's different from the kind of evolution I think most people are talking about. So here's the deal. If a lot of people wonder, with science believing that Darwin's theory of evolution is true, in other words, it's not just, oh, it's not just a theory, this is scientific fact. You know, people believe that, and they say, if that is true, or if Darwinian's evolution is factual, then did that evolution put God out of a job, right? In a lot of people's minds, evolution tells us everything we need to know about our origin. So, who needs God? That's how a lot of people feel. Well, I say not so fast. First of all, there's a few factors that uh, are related to our existence that Darwin's theory don't even address. In fact, there's at least two that I, I want to bring up. The first one uh, is, was addressed by this uh, pastor. He's now an author. His, name's Mike, his name is Mark Middleberg. And Mark Middleberg's actually a good friend of Lee Strobel. You guys remember who Lee Strobel is? the guy who wrote The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith, and he came out with that movie about his life and how he, an atheist journalist who has a law degree from Yale, how he became a follower of Christ through the influence of his wife, Leslie, becoming a Christian. So Mark Middleberg writes this book, and I love the title of it. He says, The Questions Christians Hope That No One Will Ask. <laughs> And so, in other words, he's going he's gonna to take on the most difficult questions they are. And one of the questions is this idea of, did evolution put God out of a job? And Mark Middleberg points out two facts about the world and the universe that Darwin's theory of evolution does not even address, doesn't even talk about. The first one is the formation of the universe itself. Darwin just assumes that there's life here on this planet, and now the life started out as a very simple organism, and then it got a lot more complex through random chance, blind mutation. That's, that's one theory. Uh, but, of course, it assumes that there's a world already here. 
Now that always reminds me of the joke. It's just a short joke between God and Satan. And Satan looks at humankind and he says, oh God, you really screwed up with those human beings. They are messed up people. They're broken. They're selfish. They're harming each other. They're holding stuff from each other. I could do a much better job of you than you did for creating human beings. And God looks at Satan and says, oh yeah, you think you could do a better job? have at it. And Satan says, okay, I will. And Satan gets down and he starts taking the dirt and he starts forming it. And God says, hold it, hold it, hold it. He says, you're going to have to get your own dirt. <laughs> Satan can't create anything. God is the one who created everything. And so how did the world get here? The, the formation of the universe itself, which Darwin's theory assumes but doesn't account for, uh, that's one of the, the obstacles to Darwinian's theory of evolution. How did it get here? How do we account for this incredible planet that we live on that just happens to be very friendly to human life and, and life for other living creatures as well on this planet? Uh, the second factor that's a problem for the Darwinian theory is not just the formation of the universe itself, but also the origin of the first life, right? Again, Darwin's theory simply presupposes that there's life already on the planet, but Darwin doesn't answer the question, okay, well, you say there's these original life forms on this planet, and then they got increasingly more complex and variegated, and they randomly mutated and uh, genetically chose the better ones, and then those organisms became other organisms, and then became plant life, and then became animal life, and ultimately became human life. I mean, that's ultimately what the naturalistic Darwinian theory of evolution says. So, but here's the question. Even if you, if you take that as a possibility, where did that original life come from? Where did the first life come from? Something doesn't come from nothing. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and God was hovering over the waters of the deep. And then he says, and God said, let there be light. God said, big bang, let there be life, which is what we talked about last week, that God spoke the universe into existence, that, yeah, something did come from nothing. Matter and energy and time and space came into existence all at one time because God willed it so. God, who is the uncaused cause, he's the creator who was apart from his creation, from everlasting to everlasting, the Bible says, he is God. Dr. Walter Bradley is the co-author of a book called The Mystery of Life's Origin. Dr. Bradley was asked why Darwin greeted, uh, how Darwin ignored this idea of the origin of the first life, or how did the universe get formed in the first place? And he said, well, Darwin, he really didn't have a good idea of how life arose. And by the way, and this is true, even today, scientists, they do not have a credible, naturalistic theory of how life itself began. Uh, they, they don't. They don't know how life began. But let's, we'll put that aside for now. Let's just assume. Okay, let's just assume. We have life on this planet, however it originated. So now the question is, how did all the different animals and plants and humans come into existence? How did there come to be fishes that swim in the ocean and have gills and that can breathe underwater? But of course, we humans can't. How can there be birds that fly because they have wings? How did those creatures develop those wings in an incremental, uh, impossibly long ran, uh, series of mutations going from amphibians to birds, which is what Darwin's Tree of Life says? You see, Darwin's theory presupposes the development of life from non-life, stresses a purely naturalistic and undirected, and it says, descent with modification. In other words, they, there were slight modifications that made the next generation more adaptable for life, and not, did they, not only did they, um, did they mutate and, and modify between the species, but they actually jumped and developed new species. How many of you guys have ever seen this in a, in a book or a textbook? It's called Darwin's Tree of Life, right? I've seen it. I've read it. When I first read it, it was just like, oh, okay, so that's the way it is because I had no Christian, uh, I had no theistic origin or background to compare it to. But what you see there, and it's impossibly small, it actually, I can read it up here more than you can. On the very bottom, it says origin of life. 
course, remember, Darwin doesn't account for how did the origin of life begin in the first place? How did the universe get here in the first place? But he just assumes there's this life here on this planet, and from the uh, first cell organisms, whether they're bacteria, whether they're, they're just amoeba cells, things like that, they progressively became more and more complex. They formed new organisms over millions and billions of years. And over on the bottom right side is the plant life. Over on the bottom left side is all these sea creatures and uh, the octopus and the jellyfish and the, the crabs and stuff like that and the snails. Over on the, the blue section, you get the shellfish and all that. Over as you progress on the right side, there's all these fish, different kinds of fish in the ocean and the lakes and the sharks and all that kind of stuff. And uh, as you progress a little further up, there's the amphibians and the reptiles. And of course, the dinosaurs are in that category. And then on the far upper left side, there's all the animals. So you have the kangaroos and the butterflies and the elephants and the lions. Even the whales, and notice the whales are not on the fish side because a whale is a mammal, and a which makes me wonder like, okay, so how did a mammal who gives live birth, how does, and who breathes air and does not breathe through gills, how does that animal get into the ocean and survive in the ocean? How did the, and what was the transitional figure that made the, and a, a mammal who gives live birth that probably originated online, how did that get into the ocean and survive in the ocean? That's a mystery to me. But as we continue up the tree of life, then finally you have this idea of primates and hominids. And of course, the Darwinian theory of evolution says that there were monkeys. And then, which I remember my nephew one time, he came out of, he came out of school one time and he said, I didn't come from no monkey. But that, that, was his, that was his response to Darwinian theory of evolution. But uh, the, the monkeys and the hominids and the Cro-Magnon and the Neanderthals and how they eventually progressed into human beings. And by the way, you should look up a YouTube explanation. And by YouTube is, is a great source to go to uh, for information. I got a lot of this. In fact, I got our video for today off YouTube with Dr. Michael Behe, which you're going to see in a few minutes. But anyway, uh, YouTube actually, there's some great scientists that explain how the hominids, who between the monkeys and the apes and the orangutans, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and the Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal, how genetically they are different from human beings and how they could not have progressed into the human beings that we have today. Scientifically, now genetically, they've proven that. So there's a problem. There's a problem right there. Um, I want to explain a couple of things. First of all, maybe you've heard of Darwin's theory of evolution. Maybe you haven't, but let me try to give it to you in a nutshell. So bear with me. In 1859, after a lot of study, including a trip to the Galapagos Islands in the 1830s, Darwin came out with this book called The Origin of Species. And he proposed his theory, and the theory basically goes like this. It's the widely held notion that all life is related and that all life has descended from a common ancestor which is what this tree of life is all about. All the life that you see right there comes down to this common ancestor, which is down there on the bottom, which is these cells and, and little simple bacterial type organisms. And somehow they became more complex and then became eventually us. So um, they descended from a common ancestor, the birds, the bananas, the fishes, and the flowers. All the animals and plants were all related, coming from original... <coughs> Uh, organisms. So that's, that's one part of Darwin's theory. Another part is Darwin's theory presumes the development of life from non-life and stresses a, and here's how it happens. So not just the fact that it's all related, all life is related to one another, but the fact that all life originated from one source and the way it became as variegated as all life is now is through a purely naturalistic, undirected, descent with modification. In other words, complex creatures with these complex organisms inside us, they evolved from more simplistic ancestors, and it took a long time, which really helps when they found out the universe is 14 billion years old and Earth is 4 billion years old, because they think with enough time, the random mutations would eventually make more complex creatures and, and end up with people like you and me. So in a nutshell, as these random genetic mutations occur within an organism's genetic code, 
the, be the beneficial mutations, the ones that, that help us survive, that help us progress as, as organisms, the beneficial mutations are preserved because they aid survival. And that's called natural selection, and that's what Darwin's theory is all about. That's how we got to be where we are today. And my, my, I, what I wrote in my notes was, oh, yeah? <laughs> like, oh, yeah? Is it, so that's really how it happened? Well, let's check it with science. Let's check it with science, what we have now. Now, I want to I show you this table on the next uh, slide because it shows you two kinds of evolution. I told you, I, I sort of, you know, teased you out, and I said, hey, I believe in evolution, but what I mean as a Christ follower is I believe in microevolution. There's two kinds. There's microevolution and there's macroevolution, right? And that's where you got mac and cheese from. No, that's not true. Okay, so uh, how do you get microevolution? Microevolution says that there is evolution occurring on a small scale within a single population, and that's microevolution. That is what Darwin observed when he goes to the Galapagos Islands and he sees these finches, and he sees finches with these different um, lengths of beaks, and the, the certain finches that had either longer or shorter beaks were, were surviving more than the other finches because of their genetic mutation lengthening or shortening their beak. So you can have a, a shorter beak or a longer beak. You can have more fur or less fur. You can have more feathers or less feathers. But the point about microevolution is there is variety within a single species, but one species does not jump and form a whole new species. That's why you can have a little chihuahua dog and you can have a Russian wolfhound dog, but they're both dogs and they're all in the family of dog. There's a great amount of variety. Look at the amount of variety in human beings. But we are all still of the same species of human beings. So that's micro-revolution. And so there's a few changes in the same species, but there's no changing from one species to another species. To put it very simply, a dog doesn't become a cat. And a cat doesn't eventually become a dog. They stay within their species. That's microevolution. Now, the, on the Darwinian evolution side, they believe in macroevolution, and that's the evolution that occurs on a large scale and surpasses the level. In other words, at some point in the evolutionary uh, uh, progression of animals and plants, a species jumps from one species to another species. That's the only way, if you go back to the tree of life, you could get all those different kinds of species and animals. And so the macroevolution results in the formation of new species. Now, I want to show you how I believe that Genesis, the book of origins in the Bible, how it actually supports microevolution. Because if you go to Genesis in chapter 1, and I, I'm trying to think where, where is Genesis 1 on our... You found it. Excellent. These people are so much better than I am. So Genesis origins uh, in chapter 1, verses 21 and 24, I've underlined it for you just so you can't miss it, right? So he's talking about God doing his creation on day 5 and on day 6 of creation. So he's talking about uh, creatures of the sea and the winged birds on day 5 and on day 6. He's talking about all the animals and eventually, of course, he gets to human beings on day 6 of creation. And then afterwards, God rested on the seventh day. So he says, God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds. When you read that according to their kinds, think species, think kinds of animals. He created whales. He created sharks. He created different kinds of fish, tuna, marlin, mackerel, all those kinds, according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. So there's the answer to the question, the, the age-old question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And, and the, create, the answer in Genesis is the chicken because God created the birds. He, he created them with the ability to reproduce. So first the chicken and then bark, 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 now you have the egg. There we go. So uh, there, there's, a, but according to its kind, which means a chicken is not going to become an elephant. And it, it, you know what I'm saying. 
day five of creation. And then God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Now the animals on land. So you have livestock, creatures that move along the ground, like the snakes and the reptiles, wild animals, each according to its kind. So you can have lions and you can have leopards and you can have coyotes, etc., like that. But those animals do not become other animals. They just have a lot of variety within the species of coyote, if that makes sense. That's what I think Genesis is explaining is called microevolution, right? So there's micro versus macroevolution. Now, Darwin actually came up with a test, and Darwin said if this could be shown then my theory kind of goes out the window. And I want to say what he said. I think it's in verse slide number eight, right? So slide number eight, Darwin's self-test for his theory of evolution. This is what Darwin himself admitted to. It said, if it could be demonstrated that a complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successful slight modifications, then my theory would have absolutely break down if it could be demonstrated. So you have this complex organism that it exists and you cannot explain this complex organism by saying, well, this complex organism exists because of all the transitional mutations that happen from a simple organism to get to that. If you can't show the transition, and by the way, that's one of the big problems in Darwin's uh, theory of evolution because the fossil record does not show transitional living uh, organisms. It shows organisms and new organisms and other organisms, but it shows no transition between the organisms, which if his theory is true, it should, it should show that in the fossil record. He says, if, that, if you can't show that, my theory would absolutely break down. Now, that's not all that there is to it, but that's a start. Now, I want to introduce you to a kind old gentleman uh, with a nice gray beard and glasses. His name is Dr. Michael Behe. Michael Behe is a... Uh, Doctor of Biochemistry, uh, he's actually at the University of Lehigh in Pennsylvania since 1978. So he's got all this postdoctrinal work on DNA structure, and he's now professor of biological science at Lehigh University. So he is uh, an expert in the field of biochemistry. And Dr. Behe, and it was interesting because uh, Eric Metaxas did this uh, Socrates in the City episode. And in the episode, Eric Metaxas says to Dr. Behe, so um, when did you come out with your new book? And the book that he wrote was called Darwin's Black Box. Darwin's Black Box, where he was going to try to take that theory that, da that Darwin said, if it could be shown that there's no transitional... Um, there's no transition between the forms from complex uh, to simple, uh, then my theory would go out the window. Uh, Dr. B, he came out with this book called Darwin's Black Box, which challenges the theory. And, and, and Eric Metaxas says, well, how did you keep your job at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania? Because they obviously wouldn't have liked you to come out with this intelligent design theory rather than the naturalistic Darwinian theory. And Dr. B, he smiled and said, well, I just happened to already have tenure. <laughs> so he got tenure at the university, and then a couple years later, he came out with his book called Darwin's Black Box. And so that's how it works. That's how a Christian professor can survive at a secular university if you get tenure first before you, quote, come out of the closet. And in a good way. Okay. All right. So, uh, so this is Dr. Behe in this book, Black, Darwin's Black Box, Dr. Behe introduces this idea, and it's called irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity. Now, what do we mean by that? He says that there's a system or a device, a system within a cell, and it's, it's so complex that if you were to take out one piece or one item from that complex system, then none of the components would work together to accomplish the task of the system. If you were to remove one of the components from that system, then the system would no longer function. And this is Dr. Behe's point. He says, an irreducibly complex system, it's highly unlikely to have been built through the Darwinian process. Why? Because the system, it has to be fully present. It has to, all the parts all have to be together there at the same time in order for that system to begin functioning. 
And the illustration he uses is, he, it's very simple, but he uses this illustration called the mousetrap. Have you guys ever seen this? Not that you've never seen a mousetrap, but have you ever heard this illustration by Dr. Behe? So the idea of the mousetrap is the, this particular mousetrap has five parts, five main parts to the mousetrap. It has a hammer, which kills the mouse. Let's don't focus on that. Poor little mouse. Okay. <laughs> okay, so you have the hammer, which kills the mouse. That's one part. The second part is a spring, which snaps the hammer down. You have the third part, which is the hold-down bar, which keeps the hammer back, cocked, so to speak, ready to spring. So you have to have that hold-down bar to hold it in place. You have to have the catch, which is where you put the piece of cheese or the peanut butter or whatever it is, so you can bait the trap to get the animal to go into the trap and then get caught. So you have to have the catch. That's the fourth piece. And then finally, you have to have something to... to, to uh, to secure it all on, to build it on, and that's called the platform. That's that piece of wood there. So everything else is attached. So in other words, there's only five pieces to this mousetrap. But the point is, if you took away any one of those pieces, the mousetrap, let's say you took away the, the catch, right? So now there's nothing, there's nothing for the bar, there's nothing to jiggle the bar for the bar to release the catch, so the hammer comes down. And if you took away the catch, there, then it, it not, not only, it, it, I get, what am I trying to say? Dr. B, he is saying that if you take away one piece, one of those five parts of the mousetrap, it's not just going to work a little less better. Like, oh, it's, not, it's only going to catch half the mouses if you have one, one of the pieces missing. No, if you have one of those pieces missing, it's not going to catch any mice because it's not going to work at all. It's an irreducibly complex system. That won't work without all the pieces functioning together. Does that make sense? That's what Dr. B, he says, but you know what? I'd rather just let him explain it than me fumble through it. So give your attention to the screen. In the edge of evolution, I consider the question of, well, how far into life does design extend? And the opposite way of looking at it is, how much can random changes plus selection really explain in life? Certainly can explain some things. Um, and I argue that uh, from molecular biochemical considerations, I argued that design had to extend down to the level of biological class. And class is something like fish versus birds versus mammals and so on. And I thought there was good evidence that random changes plus selection could explain species, maybe genus, but in between that, in between class, there's order and uh, family and genus and so on. Uh, it, science simply hadn't progressed far enough uh, for, uh, for uh, a strong conclusion to be made. But that was 10 years ago, and uh, science has made a lot of progress, and it's, it's accelerating. And it turns out that I was right that somewhere in that is the edge of evolution. But I think it's much deeper than the level of, of class. I think it actually goes down to the level of family, which is dogs versus cats and, and so on. So uh, if that's correct, then the information needed to specify a dog, a generic dog versus a generic cat, uh, had to have been intelligently arranged. And perhaps dog breeds or uh, different kinds of cats could arise from these uh, from the ancestor cats probably by devolution by breaking genes and and uh, as we've seen in many cases breaking genes could help but I think that information is at least needed down to the level of family and I, I think the more and more science knows and finds out the deeper and deeper into life design is seen to extent.
black box, I pointed out a problem that most everybody senses but really didn't have a term to it yet. It was actually suggested uh, by a man named St. George Mavart, who was a biologist t writing 10 years after Darwin. And he says, well, you know, yeah, Darwin's idea of variation and selection, it'll work, but with things like the eye, the eye doesn't, can't see until it's got a number of parts with it. So he was, he, he called that the problem of incipient structures. And I kind of extended the concept to a molecular level because molecular machinery needs a number of different parts to work too. And I coined a term irreducible complexity to kind of focus light on that particular problem. And the term means that you've got a, uh, a machine or a system or something that has a number of parts and it needs all those parts to work. And if you take one away, the system can't work anymore. It can't be reduced. And an example I used was a mouse trap, a mechanical mouse trap. And in most mechanical mouse traps, they've got a handful of different parts. And if you take away one or more, then it simply can't work. You take out the spring, it's broken. You remove the little hammer that hits the mouse, and it's broken too. Well, uh, Darwinists have, for the past 20 years or so, been trying to counter that argument. And they, they've offered a number of ar arguments, but in my completely unbiased opinion, they all <laughs> fail. And one, uh, one argument uh, is that, well, the uh, pieces of the mousetrap could be used for something else. So you don't have to have something that's working at a, as a mousetrap right away. Uh, you could use things for other purposes, and then maybe they could come together. For example, one uh, scientist in a debate, he said, well, we can use a mousetrap without a, what's called a holding bar, to keep the, keep the, uh, the uh, metal piece open. Uh, he said, I could use that as a tie clip. And as a matter of fact, he had it on his shirt as a tie clip, just to emphasize his point. And he says, why, we could take the wooden base and we can use it as a paperweight. And he's, so he said that, this Behe fellow said that with, without all the parts, the mousetrap can't function. But look, you know, these parts are doing different jobs. And that just really kind of distorts the argument it's not that you can't use a, a piece of some complex machine as a paperweight. Anything can be a paperweight. The irreducible complexity uh, concept says that if you take one away, you can't have a mousetrap anymore. You can't use that as a mousetrap. And in fact, that still holds. And even, even with that argument, it doesn't hold up because uh, in order to have parts that will later be put together into a mousetrap, you've got to have that future goal in mind. If you look at paperweights, none of them look like they're going to be used for a mousetrap base. If you look at tie uh, clips on the internet, say, none of them are in the shape of a mousetrap, save for pictures of that guy who was given a <laughs> talk uh, with the mousetrap on his tie. So uh, that's a big problem is people, when they're imagining the evolution of things, they kind of use their intelligence to guide things along the way. But Darwin's theory is, is a radical theory, he says that no guidance, nothing like that is, is needed. So how do you have all these complex systems if there's no intelligence guiding the formation of the system in the first place? I think that's one of the, the big problems with the Dar Darwinian evolution idea. Um, I want to offer a third reason why I don't believe in the Darwinian model. I don't believe that the Darwinian uh, model that complex organisms just came around by uh, random chance mutations and, quote, natural selection. And, of course, uh, part of the uh, answer is related to this idea of these complex molecular machines that are in every single human body. Now, I had a slide up there uh, where 
I showed a still kind of a color drawing of the bacterial flagellum. You saw that motor that was spinning in the video there. That's in the, the simplest bacterial organism that is on the planet. They have this bacterial flagellum. That's what moves the bacteria through water and liquid. And when you look, and, and now that in the last 50 years, they've been able to magnify these microscopic organisms or super small organisms, and they're able to see the detail of the complexity of how that machine works. They said that human beings, that scientists have actually said this, human beings could not uh, right now take engineers and make an engine to function in the same way that that bacterial flagellum functions in the simplest bacterial organism now. That, uh, that rotor uh, system that's in there for the bacteria, it is rotating at 100,000 RPMs. 100,000 RPM. So, and, and of course, Behe's argument is if you take away any of those single parts to that bacterial flagellum, not only uh, is it, it doesn't just slow down the RPMs, it completely breaks apart and it doesn't work at all. So, so you say, well, what are you saying with that? You're saying there, this complexity screams for something that's not just random, not just chance, not blind mutations over time. It actually screams for intelligent design where, where a mind looks like it knows what it's doing. So the counterpart to this idea of natural selection is design. Let me explain design. Uh, I looked this up. Design, by definition, it's the purposeful, inventive, arrangement of parts or details. So somebody, in other words, somebody is intelligently arranging these parts or details for an end goal. So I see more evidence of design in nature rather than random chance mutations. I mean, that's what I see. I, I see people and I see they're complex. And even, you even take the human being and I think there was one time when I was, I was thinking about the human body and all the different systems that are in the human body. The skin is a, is a whole uh, complex system that keeps out uh, bacterial and infection from the body. It's fighting it off all the time. Everybody take a deep breath. Your respiratory system is taking in this oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide, and it is all working complex, complexly together. Your, your circulatory system, your digestive system, your muscular system, your nervous system, your, horm your hormone system, and that's all in just one human being. <laughs> and, and all that complexity is necessary just for us to have a, a court normal human life that we all just take for granted. But there's amazing complexity, complex design behind all of that in order to be able to work. Now, design is deduced from a complex physical structure. So here's a big piece of evidence for design. Now, in 1957, so this is only, what, 62 years ago, Dr. Francis Crick discovered a nucleotide base. And I looked up this guy's uh, life, his biography. He devoted his life to science. And he worked with this other doctor, and they, they came up with this discovery in the late 50s that within each of the cells, there is this alphabetic code, this specific arrangement of characters that formed a code which came to be called DNA, and each of the cells, and, and each cell had this code that was used to build all these kinds of different nucleic acids. So, in other words, the cell, the cell in order to survive or replicate has to build all these different parts to the cell to help it function. Like, how do you take in oxygen? And how do you take in nutrients? And how do you expel waste? And how do you move around? And how do you reproduce? And, and all of that is, is within the simple cell that's not even part of a larger organ, that's part of a larger complex system, which is a living being. So, and you think about all that's necessary and that each of those little cells has their own complex code. And, and then check out the second fact that the encoding of information in the cell, all this encoding, which makes all organic life even possible, it, it's, has, it's made up of this amazingly complex information in DNA. Now, scientists have studied this DNA, and they said that in each of our human bodies, 100 trillion cells, which is a pretty big number, uh, in each of our cells, it has DNA, and if you were able to pull out this tightly coiled DNA, it would stretch out to six feet in each one of our cells. That's amazing. 
uh, right there. But how that DNA provides the genetic information, in other words, to say, build a skin cell, build a lung cell, build a liver cell, build, you know, a muscle cell, build a fat cell. Those are the ones we don't like. But, the, you know, all the different cells that we have, they all have their DNA with all this complex encoded information to say this is what you're to build, not that. And the, there's a biochemist from Australia named Michael Denton. Michael Denton says this about DNA. I think it's in slide number 14. There it is. He says the astounding capacity of DNA to harbor this mountain of information carefully spelled out in four-letter chemical alphabet, it vastly exceeds that of any other known system. In fact, anything we humans have created so far, all the complex uh, computers and, and machines and things like that we've made, none of it compares to the complexity that's in one cell's DNA and the amount of information that, that is in that. The information needed to build the proteins for all the species of organisms that have ever lived, and this is amazing too, the information to build everything that there is could be held in a teaspoon and there'd still be room left for all the information for every book that's ever been written. That is astounding. I hope you saw that, that this is like that that doesn't scream man, random chance mutation to me. That screams design. That screams that some mind, some incredibly creative, intelligent designer was behind that, making that possible for life to progress and replicate the way that it that it does. In the 1990s, scientists announced that they'd finally mapped out this three billion letter code of the human genome. This project that had filled the equivalent of 75,000 pages of the New York Times newspaper, right? This human genome, three billion letter code. Uh, when they mapped it all out, there were references, even among the scientists, references to a divine creator, a divine being that uh, designed all this. Even President Clinton at the time said, scientists were learning the language in which God created life. Geneticist Francis Collin head of that project, the human genome, he said DNA was our own instruction book, which is previously known only to God. There's another uh, Christian uh, person who's a scientist. I almost said Christian scientist, but that's, a, that's kind of a different category. But he's a scientist who's a Christian. His name is Dr. Stephen Meyer. And Stephen Meyer, I, you know, I say, look up Dr. Behe on YouTube, look up bacterial flagellum, look up irreducible complexity, look up this man, this Dr. Stephen Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R, because he's a genius also. He is author of a book called Signature in the Cell. And, and Dr. Meyer wrote, information is the hallmark of mind. And purely from the evidence of genetics and biology, we can infer the existence of a mind that is far greater than our own. A conscious, purposeful, rational, intelligent designer who is amazingly creative. His conclusion, Dr. Myers, is compelling. He says an intelligent entity has spelled out the evidence of the existence through those chemical letters used in the genetic code in the DNA of every single cell. It's almost as if, as Myers' book suggests, it's almost as if the Creator autographed every single cell. You know, in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul was writing about God being the Creator and how He upholds everything by the word of His power. Paul says it this way. He says, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him, in God, all things hold together. There's other scriptures that talk about God's creation. Um, there's Psalm 33, 6, God the creator. Uh, in slide 16, he says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens created. In other words, the universe existed because God spoke them into being. They're starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. It also says in Hebrews 3 that God created the heavens and the earth by speaking them into existence so that what was seen came from what was not seen, right? What is seen was not made out of what was visible. That universe was formed because God commanded it to be so. So I know it's getting late. I want to know you guys want to go. I just want to sum it up for you because the original question, you guys are probably like, I'm on information overload. What was the original question? 
The, I know it. I wrote this sermon. Okay. Uh, the original question was, did evolution put God out of a job? So in other words, oh, evolution just explains everything, explains how life got here, explains how everything works, explains how random chance mutations and genetic modifications account for all the life source. We don't even need God. We don't need a creator. Science just explains it all. Well, no, it doesn't. And there's four factors that challenge this idea of macro-Darwinian evolution. The first one we talked about was the formation of the universe itself. Darwin's theory does not account for how the universe got here in the first place. So the formation of the universe is one factor. Second factor is the origin of the first life. If Darwin is correct in saying that all life evolved from this one original organism, then where did that original organism come from? Don't forget the God and Satan joke. You got to get your own dirt. Number two. So number three, the, the irreducible complexity of molecular machines, like the bacterial flagellum. Like almost everything in molecular cells, they are groups of tiny but very sophisticated protein machines. And uh, most scientists say that even if we uh, could understand how they all work, we couldn't build them ourselves. And yet they're here and yet they're built. And that screams out for a designer who is more intelligent than we are. So the irreducible complexity of molecular machines, and then finally, the encoding of information in the cell, in this DNA, where they can hold more than a library of information in a single teaspoon uh, of DNA that could, with that information, to build all these proteins that's encoded in the DNA, they can build all the life forms that, that there are. That's just incredible to me. Uh, that, of course, those were things, those last two uh, those last two factors of scientific discovery in the last 50 years, they were something that Darwin, he, he, could not, he didn't know about. He couldn't have foreseen that. He didn't understand it, but he was hoping science, well, as science progresses, we'll be able to figure out the gaps in the theory and the problems with Darwinian evolution. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Darwin, but science is actually, uh, the more it progresses, the more unplausible your theory of macroevolution looks. And it's looking more and more like there's evidence of design, which we would say points back to a designer, which we would call the creator, which we would call God, Yahweh, Elohim, who also says that he uh, created mankind separately from all the other animals because he breathed into man the breath of life. Man became a living being. He gave us uh, uh, the ability to be created in God's image. Man created in God's image means we have the ability to relate, to love. We have the ability to make moral choices. We have the ability to invent and build things. We have the ability to uh, decide and discern between what is right and wrong. And God says, not only did I give you that ability, but I'm going to hold you accountable for your moral choices. And in the progression of humanity, we, mankind has, has, as we reaffirmed Adam and Eve's decision ever since Genesis 3 in every one of our lives because we all decided that we would rather be independent, we'd rather do life our way and not have to live under the authority of God. And that independence the Bible calls sin and that sin has separated us from our creator. And God says, you know what? I love you. And because I love you, I'm going to make a way for you to come back into a right relationship with our Creator. And so God sent Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone has seen me, he sent the Father. He says, no one has seen God at any time, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, Jesus, God, the Word made flesh, he has made God known to us. And Jesus is the bridge. Jesus is the one who made a way for us fallen human beings trying to figure out where did I come from? What is life all about? How did I get here? How did this world get so messed up? How are human beings so incredibly complicated? Like we're angels on Tuesday and we're devils on Wednesday and we act great in this moment and we act completely self-centered in this other moment. How is that possible in the same organism? And the Bible explains every bit of it. We are created good but we went bad by our own moral choices and jesus says i can help put you back together i can bring you back into a right relationship with god and i'm going to 
one day I'm going to put the world back together, but if you join me in my family by faith in Jesus and you become a member of my team, I'm going to use you to help put this world back together and put it all under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So eventually the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's God's, there's God's design. That's what he's after, and he wants to use you and me, and isn't that awesome? So, Jenna, worship team, would you guys come up and get ready for that final song? I, wanna, I want us to bow our heads and have a final word of prayer. And as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I... I just want you to reflect on a few things. As, as you've been here, whether you're online uh, via live stream, whether you're here in church today, uh, are you seeing, are, 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 is, is your understanding become, becoming clear that, that the world is here because God willed it to be here? That this creation exists in all its beauty and order and majesty and complexity because there's an intelligent creator behind it all? And he's the creator of everything, including you, and that he wants to have a personal love relationship with you. I want to read a verse to you. It says, For God made Jesus, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Jesus is the one who makes us right with God. Jesus is the one who will lead us. He's the mediator between us and God. And he says, I want you to follow me. I want you to put your trust in me. I want you to let me lead you so that I can give you the abundant life that I created you to live. If you're ready to embrace Christ, if you're ready to say, I'm going to stop going my own way and I'm going to go your way, God, I'm going to make a change and it starts today. Will you please pray with me? Dear Lord Jesus, I, I recognize that that this world exists because you made it and you hold it together by the word of your power. And Lord Jesus, I believe that when you came to earth, uh, you didn't come just to be a good teacher. You came to be the, the, the once for all offering for all of our sin, all of our wrongdoing. And you've made a way for us to be forgiven. And so today, Lord, I'm turning around my life. I'm putting my faith and trust in you. Lord, I accept what you did for me when you, got, when you gave your life on the cross. And if you died for me, then Lord Jesus, I'm going to live for you. Help me to do that. Help me to figure out the next steps as I continue to grow and develop in my faith. I thank you for this church family that's here as we all support and build each other up and help one another grow into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for being with us here today where two or three are gathered in your name. You say you're here among us and we thank you for your presence. Continue to bless and to, and to work out your, your will in each of our lives. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.